Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Hold the Line. So I am going to talk today a bit about... A dog that I bred and owned a few years ago called Fire. And I'm going to talk about her because I think there are some interesting things to be explored in terms of behavioral issues in working gun dogs and how these behavioral issues might relate to what the gun dogs are bred for and, and the sort of tasks that we want to see from working gun dogs. So I think there's a lot to mine in this subject and it just seems that although fire is kind of a case of one she's quite an interesting case of one (laughs) so i'll just give you a little bit of an overview to start with and then we can go into some of the detail and talk a bit more at the end about the ramifications of this and the implications of it for working labradors generally so fire was is a fox red labrador and we rehomed her at six months so we originally kept her from our litter and she was our sort of keeper pup and it became pretty clear that due to her behavioral issues we were not going to be able to keep her which i'll explain some more about that in a bit but um i will just say at this point that the issues were spooky fearful barking behavior directed towards people specifically she was not bothered by other dogs she could take or leave other dogs she was not very interested in them, but also not worried about them either. And she was very environmentally sound with anything happening. So traffic or noises or, you know, anything happening in the environment, as long as it didn't involve a person or the sudden appearance of a person. So that's just to give you a sort of overview of of the issues that she ended up having. And... It's kind of, I've wanted to do an episode about fire for some time actually, but the reason that I haven't is because I think I was a bit too close to it for a while. And this, this all happened back in 2019, really. So, and the very start of 2020. So it seems like quite a long time ago now because this was just pre pandemic. So it was like, it was another world, wasn't it? Pre pandemic. And it's taken me this long to be able to sort of reflect on it and draw out of it some of the, the the interesting things to talk about as a whole rather than just being me waffling about my dog or a dog that was my dog. So the other thing to say about it is that we're in a bit of a unique position because we both bred and then raised fire. And what can often happen when dogs develop behavioral problems is there can be this situation whereby there's a bit of a blame game going on between the breeder and the owners. Um, so the the owners can have this puppy and when they see it developing behavioral issues and it's not due to anything that they've done to the puppy and it's not due to anything the puppy's experienced and it's happening at quite a young age, I think they can often blame it on the breeder and they can often say, well, the breeder didn't expose the puppies adequately to whatever it was, or the breeder has allowed the puppies to have a bad experience, or it must be something the breeder's done, basically. 
And then vice versa, the breeder can there can be sitting there thinking, well, this puppy was perfectly fine when they left me at eight weeks. And if there's something going on, there must be something the new owners have done. They must have just not socialized the puppy properly, or they must have allowed the puppy to have a bad experience, or maybe they didn't notice the puppy was having a bad experience and because I don't know enough about dog behavior. But so this blame game can sort of go on in both directions. And I think the thing that's interesting one of the things that's interesting here is that we both bred fire and we also raised fire from from sort of eight weeks onwards. So we are both the breeder and the new home, as it were. And as a result of that, we sort of had this overarching knowledge of her development and everything she'd experienced from the second she was born, because I was the first person to touch her and hold her and I whelped her. So I kind of have like an intimate knowledge of, of every step of her development, which perhaps doesn't happen too much, especially when it comes to people who are willing to then talk about that in detail. <laughs> um, I think a lot of breeders who, if they do keep a puppy which develop behavior problems, would probably try and hide that fact and shove it under the table and not explore it or talk about it or mine it for, for what could be learnt from it. So the other thing to say is that we also know Fire's mum, of, of course, because we bred the litter. So we own her mum, Moy, and we know her incredibly well too. So that's another angle on this. And as I said, this is a study of one, but I did make detailed notes at the time. And I did that because I wanted to know if things were getting better, if they if they were getting worse, if things that we were trying were helping. And so I was sort of making detailed notes as we raised her. And it's actually become quite useful to look back at those notes now and reflect on them and to see her development and to see just to see it all laid out, really. Um, I have those to look back at. So I think that I will just, we'll talk about this more at the end, but I would just say that I've noticed as someone who works with working Labradors, come to my classes quite often, that as a breed or as certain lines of this breed, um, there are temperament issues involved often, especially towards people. I don't really notice them as having notable issues with other dogs. It tends to be especially towards people. And we need to sort of talk a bit about what we can do about this and why why it exists, why this this issue is is, is an issue. And I have some thoughts about that. Obviously they're just thoughts and ideas and not, you know, there's not been any kind of conclusion or or proof of any of this. Um so anyway, that's a kind of introduction to to the situation really and and now I'm just going to take you through um, some of the things that happened with fire and what, you know, when it all started and the first signs of it and that sort of stuff. So first, I should say that fire's mom is Moy, who is our black Labrador, and she's now eight years old. And when she had this litter, she was five years old. She was just five. And Moy is everything that I love in a dog. She is she has drive, she has enthusiasm and speed, and she has all of that with heaps of biddability. And she just really wants to work with you and wants to work for you and just seems to find that a reinforcing thing. She she has this ability to both be really connected to you, even at a distance. So if I say, hey, Moy, let's go this way or something when we're out, even if she's roamed quite a long way away, she's always got an eye on me. She always is alert to anything that I've said. Um, and there's, there's a really great connection. She's, she's really good to train with when it comes to handling and taking directions. She, that, that sort of invisible connection between us extending over great distances really helps her with that as well. And yet, despite all of this, she still has independence and a desire to, to hunt and explore the environment for herself and, she she actually left her own devices, will find and put up pheasants better than um, many HPRs that I've worked with. <laughs> um, she doesn't point them, but she will put them up for you. She she holds a line really well. She runs with, with confidence and enthusiasm. She has a gentle mouth. The The negatives that I could say about her is that she she can err on the side of being a little bit hot. And when she was younger, and by that I mean a little bit unsteady, She's sort of very, very keen dog. And particularly when she was younger, she she was a little bit noisy, a little bit squeaky sometimes. And I was a bit worried about that. But as she got older, she kind of grew out of that. And as she matured, 
it sort of um, faded away and stopped being so much of an issue and was not really apparent at all anymore. And she has a great off switch at home. So she's happy just to lie around the house and chill. And she's, you know, for all her energy in the field, she comes home and switches off instantly. So Moy, Moy is in many ways a really fantastic dog. And I really wanted a puppy for Moy. And that's why we bred Fire. So we wanted to keep Moy's sort of athleticism and working ability. And we also wanted to keep the COI low in the breeding, but to keep a strong field trial breeding. So that was quite important to us when it came to looking at the pedigrees to make sure that the pedigree was a strong trial pedigree. It had a lot of red on it, but it also would result in a low COI when put with Moy. He also has a strong trialing pedigree. So that was a kind of priority for us. And that was a, it's a little tricky, to be honest, because the sort of pool of Labradors that that are used in trialing is can be quite small and it's quite difficult sometimes to put two together and make sure they meet all other requirements that you have and they still have a low COI. But that was important for me for sort of health reasons and sort of breeding practices. So so both Moy and the stud were fully health tested and I didn't, there's not much more to say really. Uh, the stud was fox red and Moy's dad was fox red, which meant that Moy carries fox red, which is why some of the puppies were fox red and some were black. So I'll just whiz you through how we raised the puppies, because I think it probably deserves a, a sort of a bit of a highlighting when it comes to what happens with people when we raise the puppies, given that that was such an issue for fire later on. So I was a member of Avi Dog. So the puppies were raised using Avi Dog principles and also they were raised using puppy culture principles too. So we kind of combined both of those. If you want to learn more about Avi Dog, by the way, you can listen back to episode 18 of this podcast where there's an interview with Dr. Gail Watkins of Avi Dog. And so both of these protocols, puppy culture and Avi Dog, involve a lot of advanced socialization protocols, which we implemented with great enthusiasm. So we used the Avidog recommended supplements and, and nutrition protocols during pregnancy. And the puppies were born in our kitchen and they stayed in our kitchen until they were three weeks old. I slept by the whelping box. So I was always there. We did ENS with them, which is early neonatal stimulation, which at the time there was no question marks around doing ENS. And it was generally accepted that this was a really good protocol to do. And I think now there's a little bit more um, I don't use the word concern, but a little more hesitancy around using it, particularly if you have sensitive breeds or sensitive puppies. So I think this might be something that I would not do in future, just given the fact that working labs are quite sensitive. We'll talk about that some more at the end. But we did do that. And we also did early scent introduction, which was an avid old protocol, which involved letting them smell a distinctive new scent every day through these first early weeks of their lives. We added, when they were three weeks old onwards, we started to add new toys to the whelping box so they could explore new objects. We had a toilet area in the box. Um, we moved into a larger weaning pen when they were sort of four, four-ish weeks old, I think. And at that point onwards, we started, started to invite people to the house to meet them. And to, we supervised closely any interactions with people and the puppies. We didn't notice the puppies being worried about the people in any way. There were new obstacles which we put in the weaning pen there were things like a mirror for example so the puppies walk on a mirror so their their own self was reflected back up at them um we had sort of raised dog walk a puppy puppy height obviously so it's safe toys balloons we had a sort of shallow water tray uh, we had crates for them to explore we had lots of like, an enriched environment for them to grow up in we did the puppy culture barrier challenge where the puppies have to figure out how to get around a barrier to a food bowl on the other side we handled the puppies daily and then I started to have, from about the age of four weeks onwards, a tiny little, very, very short clicker training session with them, which only lasted about one to three minutes. And it was just about teaching them the concepts of training, really, to so teaching them that the click means a treat is coming, that they can earn food by through behaviours that which they perform, and just to get this across to them rather than actually training them to do anything. So it's more about creating puppies that have learnt how to learn. That was more important. So we taught them manding, which is a puppy culture word, meaning how to offer a sit to earn a click and treat. I did the box game with them, which is a shaping exercise where they're just sort of shaped to interact with a box, usually to stand on it or put their front two paws on it. 
we every time we fed them, we did a whistle recall, which resulted in a really strongly trained recall whistle by the time they went home. Uh, we did some offered attention. So we got them, you know, we put some treats behind our back and every time they gave us eye contact, we clicked and gave them a treat. And I started some fold back down stuff with them just because the fold back down, I think, is actually much easier to do with tiny puppies than it is when they get bigger and lankier and their legs get longer. So anyway, sort of like to start that off. So we did that. We had sound um, DVDs and CDs playing in the background while they're in the weaning pen and they were fine with all of that. And then when they were about five weeks old, we sort of started to take them out just in pairs, um, just to do like a sort of outing or two in the car. So they had some experience of being in the car and riding in the car. And we also started to do Avi Dog adventure walks in our own private field. So that was just we take Moy and the litter of puppies to the field and have a wander around the field. So they get to explore a natural environment and be in a new place and learn to kind of stay with the group. Um, and we we're constantly adding new items. And by that age, they're also in an outdoor pen, too. So it's a different pen with different things in it. When they were six weeks old, they had a puppy party. So we had two puppy parties. One was at six weeks and one was at seven weeks. And for each puppy party, there were probably about 20 people that we invited. And they were people who were very dog savvy. They were sort of my more advanced students. And I would sort of invite them because I knew that they knew how to do clicker training and how to interact appropriately with puppies. And so they would come and we did this in a sort of um, church hall where my puppy classes are run, but we mopped the floor with disinfectant before and had everyone wear shoe coverings on their feet. And basically what would happen at these puppy parties is there were various different stations around the room. So there was like a tunnel at one station and then there was a, I don't know, wobble board, another station and maybe a little dog walk, puppy sized dog walk at a third station. And so there are various different stations. And at each station, we had a couple of people working with a puppy at a time. And so each puppy would have a station with those two people. And then we would, I think we'd do like 30 seconds. I can't remember how long it was before we would then rotate on and the puppies would rotate to the next couple of people. And again, this was not really about training them to do anything. It was more about socialization, learning to interact with these people and learning they could work with people to earn treats. So the puppies did really well at all the little training tasks, given how young they were. And they also got to met, meet lots of people. So we had, two, as I said, we had two of these puppy parties at six weeks and seven weeks, and we had 20 people come to each puppy party. So, so the puppies met about 40 people at these two classes. And there were men and women and people of different ages. So... Um, and we were always, always sort of closely supervising things as well. And the other thing which is interesting to say about this is that later on, so I videoed these puppy parties. I had like a video camera set up on a tripod. And later on, when Fire developed the issues that she developed, I thought, I wonder if knowing what happened later on, I can see any signs of this worry about people at this earlier age and at these puppy parties. And I looked back at these videos and I couldn't see any sign of any concern. I mean, Fire was one of the most confident puppies at these puppy parties she was sort of happily running around the room running after people chasing people um sometimes running away if she wanted to go and visit one of her siblings but she was she was very sort of outgoing and confident and everyone kind of remarked on that so the thing one the first thing that's interesting to say i guess is that, oh, and I should say also that anytime we took the puppies out, we were always closely watching and monitoring them to make sure it was a positive experience. So we didn't want it to be like just everybody being all over the puppy and the puppy being a bit intimidated. So we're very sort of closely supervising things. And that's why when we went to a cafe, we went to a pub, we would only take a couple of puppies with us because we felt like we could adequately supervise a couple and we could really make sure they didn't get overwhelmed. We were just there for sort of 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and then we would pop home and swap them over for another couple of puppies and then take them out to the pub. So we would do that a few times too. So, you know, these puppies had a sort of optimal raising in terms of everything that could be done with them before they left us. And I'm really confident about that and about saying that. So... The first notable thing to say is that at eight weeks old, we had our, our sort of puppy pickup session and we decided to do this back at the hall, same hall that we'd used for the two puppy parties. So the puppies were familiar with this environment because they'd been there twice before. But what was very interesting was that they were all noticeably subdued and a little bit wary and a little bit um, timid and reluctant to go and meet their new families and the people. It was very interesting because there was a sudden change at this age, at eight weeks, which we hadn't seen before. 
And I was a little bit worried at first, but the whole litter were like this. It wasn't just fire. The whole litter were like this. And over the sort of hour that everyone was there, they all kind of came out of themselves and relaxed quite a lot and were soon zipping around the room and back to their normal puppy selves. But it was a little bit worrying at first. And, you know, there is it is a fear period eight weeks. So that is the first thing to say. And I know that it's debatable whether fear periods actually exist. But what we observed here just seemed to fit with that anyway. But the other thing to say is is that fire didn't go to a new home. So one thing that's often said is that you shouldn't place puppies during a fear period and that this can be a cause of issues later on. But I think the thing to say here is obviously fire came back home with us. So she didn't go to a new home um, during her if it was a fear period. So we can't level, we can't point the finger at that and say that that was a cause in this case. So there was another puppy that we looked after for a further week because one of the new homes was away on a pre-booked holiday. So we had two puppies for one more week, Fire and her brother, Doug, and both of them seemed to be completely fine. We took them to the beach. We went to some pubs. They were not down on the ground yet because they hadn't had their first vaccination. So we were still carrying them around the board. We didn't see any, any indication or any sign of worry. Then Doug went to his new home. Fire had her first injection. And at nine, week, nine weeks and three days is when we first experienced something. <laughs> Let's put it like that. So basically what happened is I took her to a really quiet pet store for her first time out. And it was like the middle of the working week and the middle of the working day. And I found a really quiet um, aisle. There wasn't anyone else there. And there was actually wasn't really anyone else in the whole store at first, really. And I put her down on the floor. And at first she was just like a normal puppy that you just plonked down in a new place. And she was a bit sort of like, oh, where am I? I'm in a new place. I'm going to explore this place, but in a kind of careful way. And then a woman appeared and she just walked into the top of the aisle. She wasn't walking particularly fast. She wasn't wearing anything scary. She just was sort of woman in her 60s. And she didn't directly head towards us. She was browsing the shelves and Fire saw her and took one look at her and put her tail down between her legs, turned around and ran away out the other end of the aisle into the aisle next door. So I was following her. I had her on a puppy house line. I was keeping the leash loose so that she could choose to go wherever she wanted to go. And she chose to run into the aisle next door and climbed on a shelf where there was a sort of empty space on the shelf between some bags of dog food. And she climbed on the shelf and hid on the shelf in this little dark corner. And I sort of sat on the floor there by fire on the shelf. And I just thought, crap, because I knew in that moment that we had a problem. I just didn't know how big the problem was going to be, if it was going to continue and how serious it would be. Because I also knew that fire was only nine weeks old. That's still well within the socialization period. And you know, everything that's said about the socialization period being a very plastic time for the puppy's brain. So they're still, they're very sort of impressionable. You can make um, great changes to the to the adult dog that they will grow into if you can do the right stuff at this time. So I was trying to sort of reassure myself with all of this. But at the same time, I knew that this just wasn't good and it was very worrying. So Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. 
And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. It wasn't very long before this sort of worry and and sort of wanting to move away and wanting to run away developed into reactivity and barking and a sort of um you know overt expression in that in that respect and sort of um yeah you're sort of typically reactive spooky dog in a very sort of um extreme way so all the hair would be up the hackles would be up on her neck and this happened when she was still a very young puppy so the thing, there were a couple of things that are interesting to say. So she, firstly, she was completely fine in, in busy places with lots of people. So, for example, in a busy store with lots of people constantly around, moving about, she was completely fine. In going through a busy marketplace, for example, with people around, completely fine. Walking through the middle of town, very busy, completely fine. And by this, I don't just mean you know, because sometimes dogs can be a bit subdued. So they can be a bit sort of owners can say that their dog is fine, but actually the owners, the dog is shut down because they're overwhelmed by everything that's going on around them. And I, I don't mean that. I mean that she really was completely relaxed and absolutely fine in these busy environments. So because of this, we were taking her to training classes, to lots of training classes, <laughs> because obviously at training classes, there are people and there are dog savvy people. And this just seemed to be a place where she was relaxed and she was comfortable and happy and able to train and work. And there were people around. So this seemed a good thing to keep up a hefty dose of for her. So my husband was bringing her to two of my classes a week that I was running. And then I was also taking her to two classes a week run by other trainers locally. So she's probably going to about four training classes a week. And she really was fine in these environments where people were constant and people were expected to be there. And she was she was sometimes a bit worried if, pe- if these people wanted to interact directly with her. So that was something we had to be careful of. But if the people were ignoring her and just walking past her, it doesn't matter how close they came to her. She was completely fine. So... What she was not fine with was being out and about somewhere and then a person appearing. So the sudden environmental contrast thing of there being nobody and then there being a person. And even if this person appeared from hundreds of yards away. So, for example, there was one situation where we were doing some sit stays in my field and we were at the very furthest end of the field. So it's about 100 yards away from the road which runs along the opposite end of the field and a person came walking along that road while I was doing a sit stay and I didn't know this because I had my back to the road so I couldn't see someone was walking along and Fire just leapt up out of her sit stay barking charging forwards hackles up because a person was walking along the road which a person that at first I couldn't even see this person because they were on the other side of a hedge and it just wasn't very obvious there was somebody there but Fire saw them and reacted in this way so it was actually quite difficult to keep her under threshold because of this, firstly, this distance issue that it would happen when people were hundreds of yards away. And it's really hard to be that observant about people 360 degrees around you, hundreds of yards away. That's a pretty tall order. And I also couldn't control when people would, were going to appear. So people could just appear from out of nowhere. I could choose a really quiet place where I didn't think we were going to run into anyone. And then someone would just walk around a corner and it would be really hard to avoid that. And I live somewhere where, somewhere where it's really impossible to go out and not see a person. We can manage to not interact with a person and, you know, that's possible. But to, to just not see a person, that is a really difficult thing. And the thing to say is that if you if you try to go somewhere where you're not going to see anybody, and then you do see a person, then it is going to be that situation where someone appears, where you go from nobody to somebody appearing. As compared to, for example, if you go to somewhere where it's really busy and where there are loads of people around, where fire was completely fine. So um, it was it was just an interesting situation. I'll give you a couple of examples of situations that, that happened with her. So this situation, she was 12 weeks old at this time. And I'd taken her to this really quiet bay 
And I'd gone there because I knew that it would be hopefully really quiet. And there were no cars when I arrived in the little car park there. So I thought that was a pretty good indication that there would be nobody there. So he hiked up this tiny little trail with fire on her long line up to the top. And at the top, there was this little sort of grassy area. And there was a, a sort of a, a, a kind of hill uh, going upwards away from us. And before I knew it, these two hikers came over the crest of the hill. So they were above us, which was intimidating, I think, to her. And they were also wearing hiking gear. So they had like their woolly hats on and they had their big hiking rucksacks on their backs. So they looked pretty scary, probably for those reasons as well. And Fire just went ballistic, barking, all her hackles up. She was inconsolable. And it was just a really difficult situation because I couldn't, if I, the only way out of this area was to go back down the trail. And if I went back down the trail, the hikers were going to follow us because they were on their way back. And so I didn't want that to happen. I, did, I thought it would be worse for us to be kind of chased or pursued by the hikers down the trail. And so I just sort of retreated as far as I could, but the hikers could see that she was reacting and they were trying to, you know, do what people do when a dog is worried to sort of squat down and make themselves smaller and reassure the dog. But all of this was just making it worse. It was just, you know, in fire's eyes, they were just interacting more with her and their gaze and attention was focused more on her. And that was just even harder for her. So obviously by this point, I was doing treat sprinkles on the floor for her to find and fire was sort of barking while eating the treat. So it would sort of be like, woof, woof, treat, woof, woof, eat a treat, woof, woof, cheat, woof, eat. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't helping her not react. It was kind of, um, she was way over threshold. So what I was doing apart from that at this time was, well, I was not, I was trying not to let people give her any attention or give her any treats because I thought that would put her in a position of conflict. She was very food motivated and she would want that food. And yet she'd also be afraid of the person. I didn't want her to feel in conflict like that. So I was just moving away from people. I was trying to give her the treats myself. I was doing treat sprinkles if we were in a really desperate situation. But where possible, I was trying to do some look at that. And I was trying to do some bat if we could get the distance right. But it was really hard to to achieve this in the in a sort of way that would keep her under threshold and control everything. I made a vet appointment and we went to the vet where we did, I made the appointment just to do nothing apart from play with the vet. Basically, I brought some toys. I brought a familiar smelling blanket from home because I figured that if she had these issues with people, an important person for her to feel comfortable with would be the vet. And our vet was lovely with her, just played tuggy with her, fed her lots of treats. And this actually served her very well because Fire needed to have a little surgery to have some retained incisors, puppy incisors uh, removed. And having such a positive experience with the vets just really, really helped when she needed to have that little surgery. Um, so obviously the thing to say is that gundog stuff, gundog work involves often people appearing from out of nowhere unexpectedly to tell you stuff like where the next drive is or where lunch will be or you know anything really and people will just kind of appear from out of bushes or around corners to give you this information and it's sort of difficult if you've got a dog which finds this challenging like fire did so i i had some big question marks about where the fire was going to fit in with us but more importantly the fact that just it where we live it was impossible to keep her under threshold on a daily basis because of the issues that I've already described, like the dis her distance threshold and the fact that it's hard to go out where we live and not see a person at all. So we also had these issues which then developed around the car, which were sort of a sort of um, development really from what had been going on already. So these issues started at puppy class really. At first, it wasn't clear what it was about. So we'd finished puppy class and I'd put her back in the car. And then some other puppies would be coming out of puppy class past our car while I was sort of reversing and leaving. And fire started to bark a little bit at these puppies. And I wasn't sure at first if it was a bit of frustration or if it was reactivity. And after the first sort of couple of times it happened, I realized I think that this is reactivity. And I blacked out the the boots as fear, fear based reactivity, I should say. Obviously, frustration is still reactivity, but I blacked out the boots so she couldn't see out of it. This also meant that we couldn't see out of it, which made driving and reversing quite interesting. But anyway, um, the thing to say though about having blacked out the boot is that she could still hear voices from outside the car and she would react just to the voices. Doesn't matter 
how far away they were, actually. she If she could hear human voices from inside the car, she would react. And so we would have these situations where I would drive and check out a little car park and it would seem to be really quiet and nobody was around. So I would park, I'd turn off the engine and then a person would just appear from around the corner or step out of a shop or something or walk down the street and talking to the person that they were with and she would hear their voice and she would react. And then I'd have to decide what to do. Do I leave her in the car reacting? That doesn't sound very optimal. Do I get her out of the car and throw some treats on the floor? That's what I would often do. But what would happen is she would, because she had these feelings, she would then transfer those feelings to the next person that she saw. So she would then bark at the next person that appeared or walked past her, even if usually she wouldn't have barked at a person in that situation. She would now because she was in this kind of state emotionally. So it kind of get transferred across to the next sort of stimuli to appear. So I think this probably paints a bit of a picture. And we then had this situation, I just tell you about this because it involves agility a little bit. And that ended up becoming something that that was in fire's future. So I took her to an agility class. This was not a class that I'd been to before because it was not a regular class that ran. It was like a kind of occasional workshop thing. And I parked in the street. Um, it was a quiet little country lane and I parked and then someone, um, I got out of the car, turned the engine off. I was opening the boot of the car to get fire out and someone walked past from behind me. So I couldn't see them because I made back to them and I was busy getting fire out of the car. And this person approached from behind and the fire saw them over my shoulder and reacted to them. So I quickly got got her out of the car and I did a treat sprinkle on the floor. And then the person walked back past us again because they were going to their car to get something and walking in both directions. So they walked back past us again, fire reacted again. And then she was in the state. And so every person that appeared from that point on was a trigger. So every person that walked past the car and I did debate just putting her back in the car, but I knew that if she heard a voice, she would just react to the voice that she would hear. And this would happen until we got into the field. Now, I knew that if I could just get her into the class and get her to realize this was a class environment, she'd be completely fine because she's very fine in a class environment and and would relax very quickly and be very on task and focused. So we just had to get into the class. So I put down a mat. We did some look at that from the mat. So we did some sort of control unleashed mat training um, from far away. And then gradually we got closer and closer to the class until we sort of integrated with the class. And then as predicted, she was completely fine. So it's very interesting. Um, and what was interesting about that class being an agility class is that I could see she had a lot of ability at agility. She's very fast, very um, focused on me in the presence of all this stuff and excitement and just a really great dog. I thought she had a lot of sort of aptitude for it. Um, so anyway, that kind of paints the picture of fire. And I think that, you know, the next step would have been to try some meds, probably fluoxetine, and we made an appointment with our vet. We ch- we spoke to our vet about this. Now, vet actually prescribed us some, but we didn't start it because I realized that this was going to be quite a long journey. If we began this journey, it'd probably be many months before we'd know what the impact of fluoxetine was going to be. And given Fire's age, she's sort of approaching six months by this age. I thought that if we weren't going to keep her, it was it was really best for us to try to find a new home for her at this point before we bonded more with her, struggled on more with her. And so I decided that we should start to look for a new home. We didn't start the fluoxetine, although the vet had given it to us. I decided to tell the new home about it and leave it up to them to decide if that was something they were going to do. So um, we decided to rehome her and I decided to try to look for an agility home because she'd always been great in classes. And I thought that would give her an outlet for her sort of intelligence and athleticism and a sort of job to do and a dog sport, which she could do basically. So, um, so that's what we did. We, we looked and we've managed to find a really, really good home for her. And she, the, the, short, the short story is that she settled in really, really well. And I don't want to sort of make it sound like it was very easy to do this because it wasn't. It was incredibly difficult emotionally. Obviously, keeping a puppy from Moy was the whole reason that we bred this litter and the whole reason actually that we went through everything, all the sleepless nights, all the stress of the breeding and the raising the puppies, the whelping, 
everything that we went through and our house being completely turned upside down <laughs> with puppies for eight weeks. We did all of this just to be able to have a pup from Moy. And we were now not going to have this pup. And so this was incredibly painful and difficult. And there was a massive feeling of loss about all of this. And the other thing to say is that Fire is incredibly affectionate towards us and loving and caring and very biddable and trainable. And it was just really hard because we really bonded with her. And to give all of that up, it was it was really, really, really difficult. So... Um, Adam, my husband, took her to her new home because I knew that either I wouldn't be able to leave her there and walk away from her or I would be a sobbing mess, which would then make the new home feel guilty for for taking her. <laughs> so um, Adam, my husband, took her by himself and said it was one of the hardest things that he'd had to do. And all this happened just before the pandemic. So he got the last boat because we live on an island. He got the last boat back to the island before lockdown. So before there were no more boats for a very long time, months. And when he got back here, he had to isolate for two weeks and stay in an apartment. And I had to bring him food for those two weeks and leave it for him outside his apartment because this was the very beginning of COVID when no one really knew what was going on and everyone was in lockdown and it was all very strict. So um, it was all in, an incredibly stressful time and we'd just given up our dog. Oh my goodness, it was really tough. So... I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. The whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the, the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend and I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me though because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I mean, Fire's doing really well and agility now. I think she's now, I think Alyssa is now going to be about three soon. Must be the third birthday quite soon. Um, and she's doing really well. So, so that is Fire's story. And now I think we need to talk a little bit about what we can extract from this and learn about from this. So the first thing to say is that it felt like there was something unfolding in front of me, which I couldn't do anything about. It felt like this was developmental, that this was just like a slow motion car crash, which I just couldn't stop. And it felt like it was it was unfolding like she she was a certain age. Therefore, this was happening to her. And not as a result of anything she'd experienced, but just as a sort of switching on of genes and developmental stuff happening. So that's the first thing to say. Now, I think it's also, it's really important to say that it's, it's, it's trotted out all the time that if you're looking for a puppy, you should just make sure the parents are fine 
and that the breeder raises the pups well and everything will be fine. And that's, you know, if you can get, get those two things right, everything will be fine with your puppy. Now, the fact is that's not true. And I know firsthand now that that is not true. So you can have both parents fine and you can do a super duper optimal job of the puppies and you can still have issues. And when this happens for genetic reasons, I reckon it's happening from, there's probably something further back in the lines, which is being expressed in the puppies, which has been it's the result of these particular combination of genes that are coming together. So when you breed two dogs together, it's like you are shaking everything up together and rolling out all the dice, which are their genes, and you're getting a unique combination of things each time. And sometimes you get stuff expressed from dogs which are further back behind the parents. So it's not manifest in the parents, but it's coming out from earlier on in the lines. Um, so the first thing to say is it's not true that you just make sure the parents are fine and the breeder raises the pups well and everything be okay. That is not true. Um, I don't know where that leaves us because it's not a very good thing. It's not a really helpful thing <laughs> to tell people, but um, yeah, you can, doing those things will probably help. Making sure the parents are fine and making sure the breeder raises the pups well is going to help your chances of getting a, a well-balanced, well-adjusted puppy, but it's not going to make it inevitable. And yeah, the other thing to say, though, actually about the other puppies in the litter is that Fire was an outlier. There were no other puppies in the litter that were as extreme as her. There's one other puppy in the litter who's a little bit reactive when someone comes into their room or their house or their space. They don't like a stranger, a strange person entering their space and, you know, impinging on them in that way. So coming into their room or their house or their very close personal space. But they're fine with meeting people in all other situations and circumstances, fine with people appearing suddenly outside fine with all of that so um yeah fire was very much an outlier in the litter when it came to the ext- the extremity of her responses so so that was another thing to say and i should also just add at this point that we haven't we haven't got a pup from moy as a result of all of this so moy is too old now she's 8 and in the uk you can't register puppies if the mother is over the age of eight it's considered that the mother is too old to breed from so moy is now too old to breed from but we decided not to breed from her again after this and part of the reason for that decision was that i couldn't foresee a way to avoid this like if we'd done everything so optimally last time with fire what on earth are we going to do again to try to make sure this didn't happen we can have another go we can just hope that things would work out differently as they did for most of the, well, or pretty much all the other puppies that we bred. Um, but the, the the tiny chance of it happening again just meant that I just couldn't risk it. I just couldn't emotionally go through having to um, do this again, having to um, give up another puppy or go through any of this again. Um, so that's basically, I think, a sort of summary of, of what happened. Now, the things that I wanted to say here about working Labradors, and this is the bit where, you know, these are just thoughts and ideas and there's no proof to any of them, but I have worked with a lot of working lab puppies. So, or various different lines, I should say. So the first thing to say is that genetics is very, very, very powerful. And that whatever the genes are, if then if they if they have this in them, as it were, in many cases, no amount of ideal exposure or socialization can compensate or can undo the the genetic predisposition for the puppy to develop in this way. It is, as I said, like watching something unfold before your eyes that you're powerless to stop. That's the best way to to put it. And so I would say that if if anyone has any slight concern about their dog, especially if it is, you know, Labrador, do not breed from that dog. If your dog is just a little bit spooky in very occasional circumstances, do not breed from your dog. So the thing about Labradors is we're not in a sort of genetic bottleneck. They're not an endangered breed. We don't have um, restrictions in terms of, you know, there are not many lines to choose from and that sort of stuff. It's We're quite fortunate in, in that labs have quite a big gene pool and 
we're not in the position where we need to be breeding from dogs that have any kind of of temperament considerations. So don't think, oh, it's the, my dog's a little bit worried, but they're only a little bit worried, or they're only a little bit worried about these specific things and these specific situations. Just don't breed from the dog. So that was the first thing I would say. Um, particularly if the issues involve fear, spookiness um, of any kind. So, so that's the first thing. The next thing is that I would say is that we have to sort of think about where this is coming from and why working labs in particular have these sort of tendencies sometimes. Not all of them, I should say. There are many, many labs I've worked with, working labs that are absolutely perfect, solid, bomb-proof, great temperaments. So I should say this is not all of them, but there are a disproportionate number of working lab puppies that I see that are spooky. And it tends to be particularly towards people rather than dogs or environmental stuff. So the first thing that I would say is that thinking about traditional breeders and owners of working Labradors, that they would conventionally be kept in kennels outside. That would be conventionally, you know, looking back where most people would keep their their um, Labradors and, and other gun dogs. So in that way, people living with them in the past when they've been kenneled haven't had to deal with some of these situations, deal with being close proximity to people. And I think many of these less intense behavioral issues sort of get sidelined a little bit because who cares if your dogs bark their heads off reactively when a person walks into their kennels because the dogs are all in kennels and because, you know, you don't take your house guests to your kennels. You can invite people around for dinner and have them come around for a social occasion and a meal and not have your dog have to interact with them because your dogs are in your kennels out the back because that's where you keep your dogs. So there's a way in which when dogs are separated and kept in a different place and not kept within a household, that some of these behavioral issues can easily be overlooked or the sort of the inconvenience the difficulty of living with dogs with them can be um, reduced because they're not kept in the house. And many pups obviously though end up bred by the by people who keep their dogs in kennels these puppies often end up in pet homes where then they end up in these situations when they have you know people coming into the house or people doing things which they may not be comfortable with or appearing unexpectedly and that sort of thing so that's one thing to say i would also say that this is my idea by the way well these are all my ideas but this is particularly my my idea um that nobody out there is deliberately breeding spooky Labradors. Nobody, there's nobody I can guarantee who's sitting down going, hey, I want to breed my Labradors. Let's find a nice spooky stud dog to put to my nice spooky bitch because we want to make some nice spooky puppies. So nobody, nobody is doing that. So when we get traits that are being expressed and we're not deliberately selecting for them, these traits must be there for some other reason. They must be there because they're being selected for inadvertently, unintentionally, when we're selecting for something else. So the question then becomes, why is the spookiness there? What is the, um, what is it for? What is it good for, the spookiness? What, what is it adaptive? What is it doing for the dog and the breeder that, they, that this is being selected for alongside something else, which, which they do want? So my theory is that working labs, particularly British working labs are bred to be very sensitive to mild aversives. So the reason that this is desirable by traditional trainers in the past, I think is because it gives people control over the dog at a distance. So if you, for example, blow your sit whistle and your dog doesn't sit and you go, sit, no, uh, uh, whatever, you yell at your dog um, (laughs) and your dog experiences that as aversive, then your dog is going to stop what they're doing. They're going to put their bum on the floor. They're going to experience that as pun- as a punisher, as an aversive, from administered from a distance. So we then end up in this situation where the the trainer, the handler, has the ability to administer an aversive remotely. So it's a little bit like what well, it's a tiny, tiny bit like in North America, e-collars are used to be able to administer an aversive remotely. And so everyone can see, who, everyone who wants to train their dog using aversives can see how quote unquote useful that is if you can administer that in a remote way. 
you suddenly develop the ability to be able to control the dog in a way that you might not if the dog couldn't be punished remotely. Now, an alternative to using an e-collar is to just breed an incredibly sensitive dog, which when you go, no, uh uh-uh, experiences that as pretty darn scary when they're at a distance from you. So, So my theory is that this has been bred in because these types of dogs, it's a it's a sort of um, primitive form of remote training, really, isn't it? So that's why it's been, why it is quite desirable, I think, or seem to be desirable. This is my theory, anyway. So the downside here, and why this is, ends up being a problem in terms of the dog developing other issues, is that the dog ends up being sensitive in other ways. So sensitive, a sensitive dog, it just means a dog is sensitive to something in the environment, to a a stimulus in the environment. So, and experiences that as an aversive. And they're not going to be, we're not going to be able to breed for a dog which only experiences one thing, like a person going no, as an aversive. The dog is going to experience other things as an aversive in the same way. So we are kind of in breeding, in selecting for a dog which finds no, uh uh-uh, to be scary, we are also selecting for a sensitive dog, which is going to experience other things in the environment, particularly things I think relating to people to also be scary. So this is my kind of theory that this this sort of sensitivity is related to what traditional trainers would perceive as being biddability and responsiveness in the dog. And that is why there is this tendency towards it in working labs. We I don't see this so much in, if at all, in showbread labs that come to my puppy classes. If anything, I see the opposite. I see the sort of excessively boisterously over-friendly showbread lab, which wants to leap all over every person that is anywhere near them. And it's kind of the opposite. And you can sort of see why there is, can't you? Because showbread labs have to be really friendly and affable. They have to be be able to be gone over by a complete stranger, the judge in the ring. So they have to be able to be approached by strangers, handled all over and comfortable in that kind of way. Um, So I find that kind of, I find all this quite interesting, I should say. Now, suggestions and what we do about this, apart from not breeding from spooky dogs. So I don't know if I have any useful suggestions because, as I said, the parents may be completely fine and the puppies may be completely fine before 10 to 12 weeks old. So with Fire, we didn't see any sign of any of this at all before she was nine weeks and three days old and I put her down on the floor in that public place and saw this response. And the breeder may have done everything optimally. So given all of that, I don't know what suggestions I have, apart from waiting until pups are much older before you select a pup. So you kind of know more what you've got because your dog is is older. Obviously, that's not always going to be practical because the breeder may not be prepared to keep the puppy longer and you may want to socialise the puppy and to make sure the puppy has been exposed to what you would like the puppy to be exposed to rather than waiting until the socialisation period has passed. So that suggestion may not be optimal either. So I'm not really sure what the suggestion is. I think you can mitigate the risk by making sure the puppies have been raised well by the breeder and that the parents are both socially well adjusted and by the way many times people don't do this especially with the stud dog they may go and meet the the mother of the puppies but they don't often go and meet the stud dog so i think that's probably important as well particularly if you're dealing with a breed where these issues exist now i've already said that we decided not to breed again from moy we also decided to not get another working labrador at that point So we had to choose whether to stick with working labs or to get another dog. And I think there were another breed. I think there were a couple of factors there. One was that it was just a bit too close to to fire and to everything that we'd just been through to get another Labrador. It just it would have hurt a little bit too much. And so I think we wanted to look for something different for that reason. But also, I just didn't know because I was that would I would then be in the position of a puppy buyer looking for a breeder. And I didn't know, even from that position, how I could avoid this happening again, how I could find a perfect breeder who would raise the puppies perfectly and who had seemingly great 
um, uh, stud dog and and female dog mum, and it would it may still happen because that had happened to us, and so it was a little bit, um, it was a little bit difficult to 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 go to do it again because I couldn't see anything to change in order to avoid this, and of course the risk would probably it probably wouldn't happen again because as statistically for most of the puppies that we bred it didn't happen even for us but it was just still not something that I couldn't risk so that's part of the reason why our next dog was Ren a GSP and she brought with her another sort of host of things that we can learn from which is going to be part two of the sort of trilogy of focusing on behavior and gun dogs and behavior but that is going to be material for a future podcast it may not be the next one because there are other things i want to talk about as well but i'm going to store it and save it as part two on this subject so anyway everyone i hope that's been useful to you it may not be useful by the way because actually i didn't give you any concrete suggestions for how to avoid this happening but i think it's important that we're aware that it is an issue and that we don't sort of just, you know, shovel it under the carpet and hide dogs that have issues like this, but that we talk about it and we try and learn what we can from it and try and reduce it and try and make sure that it doesn't happen and that we we breed away from this wherever possible. Anyway, that is all for this week, everyone. Bye-bye for now. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line.